0: Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. Galatians chapter 2, open up your Bibles. Galatians chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 11 to 14 today. Let me read that, then we'll pray, then we'll start working through it. Galatians 2 at 11. This is the word of the Lord. But when Cephas came to Antioch... Hi, Hi. Hi, Willie. Welcome to church. No problem. All right, let's start over. Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to start with, with Calvin because I always save it for the end and I run out of time. So, Calvin, preaching on this passage, a really helpful sermon, says this near the end. He says, we must take good note of the fact that when a sin is deepening and spreading because of silent acquiescence in it, we must deal with it. If we only respond when the illness is deep-rooted, we will be too late. When those who corrupt God's truth by adding their own inventions are drawing men to themselves and attracting a large following, it is time to arm ourselves for the fight. For if we tolerate it, we will surely be responsible for the ruin of the church, which will result. Then, if after we have shown ourselves cold and indifferent, we decide to act, God will not bless us with his grace." Let us be warned, therefore, that when evil increases and becomes contagious, that is to say, when one person corrupts another, we must vehemently oppose them and not allow the tares to grow, leaving the wheat choked in their midst. No, we must pull out the tares in good time. This not only applies to errors which corrupt pure gospel doctrine, but also to all corruption and vice. However, when it comes to heresies and wicked perversions of the truth, which distort everything, we should react as if we have been punched or stabbed in the stomach or neck. For in what does the life and well-being of the church consist, if not in the pure word of God? If someone came and poisoned the meat which we needed for food, would we tolerate it? No, it would make us strike out. The same reasoning applies to the gospel— We must always raise our hands to defend the purity of its doctrine, and we must not allow it to be corrupted in any way, whatever. Therefore, if sin reigns, we must deal with it at the appropriate time. For if we tolerate it or make it a laughing matter, and then subsequently try to deal with it, we will be surprised to find that God has shut the door on us and that Satan has won." This is a just reward for our cowardice and coldness if we are not prepared to heal the sickness which corrupt and infect the body of the church the moment we see them arise within her. I love that that statement he makes about um, if we make errors, if we make heresies, sins of doctrine, a laughing matter. Then we've lost, right? And that that is the way of the church today, the the lightness with which we approach all things in the church, right? And if there's a disagreement, we 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 laugh it off. We laugh it off. He says he says error in the church is we should respond to error in the church as as if we had been stabbed in the neck. stabbed in the neck, which uh, requires a pretty swift response before you bleed out. So, Galatians chapter 2, we're getting now down, it's no longer Paul, the Apostle Paul, nibbling at the edges of the doctrine of justification. Now it's getting down into the issue, and out of this, this The difficulty he had with the Apostle Peter comes really the rest of the book and a long extended uh, sermon on the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. So last time, the Apostle Paul, you remember, went up to Jerusalem, was there for a short time, everybody was on the same page, they were with him in how in the question of how do we minister to the Gentiles right and this is a lot of Jewish men discussing how do they minister to the Gentiles the Apostle Paul is a former Pharisee the strictest sect of the Pharisees he was a part of and he has been for the previous 14 years he's been out in the sticks ministering to Gentiles And treating them just as he would any Jew, right? You must come to faith in Jesus Christ. You are justified by faith alone, as our father Abraham was. And so, the Gentiles do not need to be circumcised. They are justified in the same way by faith in Christ. Now, the apostle Peter, and he's called Cephas in this, but we we know that that, um, that is Peter, goes to Antioch, where the Apostle Paul is, and the Apostle Peter falls into terrible sin. He goes there, and the chief of the Apostles, the elder statesman of the Apostles, falls into sin. He goes and he does the wrong thing. What is, he, what is his sin? Now, this is interesting. In, in a sense, he's committing the same sin he committed on the night in which Christ was crucified. Notice what it says at the end of verse 12. That last phrase, explaining his behavior Arising out of what? Fear of the party of the circumcision. He's fearful. Who was he afraid of on the night Jesus was betrayed? Several servant girls. He was afraid of them. He was afraid that his association with Jesus would cause them to look with disfavor upon him. That's the same sin there as it is here. Now he's in Antioch, now it's many years later, and now he's falling into that same sin of fearing what people will think about him, right? And that may be, that may be as, as base as this sin is, right? He can't handle, and this is the topic of today's sermon, he on these occasions, can't handle the pressure that the world brings against him. He caves to the world. It's the temptation we all face. Scripture is filled with exhortations to resist the world, right? To hate the world, to not go after, after the pleasures or the doctrines and philosophies of the world. And here he is, falling in, even if for a moment, caving to the pressure of the world coming against him and he's fearing the party of the circumcision he's fearing these judaizers he's fearing the men in antioch now who are going around in this area and saying that the gentiles have to follow the ceremonial law they have to get circumcised they have to follow the cleanliness laws or they can't be good christians So everybody Paul talks about in this letter, he's not addressing pagans. He's addressing those who have some profession of faith. Even the Judaizers have some profession of faith. They think Jesus is the Messiah. They just think you can't give up the ceremonial laws and you have to add that to Jesus. So keep that in mind. He's dealing with professing Christians all throughout the book. Calvin, Calvin in the same sermon, says that The Apostle Peter is committing three sins. He's and and he's he's splitting the church. If the apostle Paul had not rebuked the Apostle Peter, it very well could be that we would have a Gentile and a Jewish church even today. Two different churches that believed in Jesus. But the but the Apostle Paul, through the 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 zeal of the Spirit within him opposes Peter, and, and um, no longer do we have that split. Um, he said, so that's the first. He's splitting the church. Calvin says, too, he's denying the grace of Jesus Christ. He's bringing back the veil, he says. He's bringing back the shadows and the veil and all those things that in Jesus, when Jesus finished his work, all of that was done away with. No. No. I'll come back to you later. Third, confirming the Jews in their error is the other thing. Confirming the Jews in their error um, to encourage and nurture ignorance by seeming to approve of it is a terrible thing, he says. So he's confirming the Jewish Christians in their error. Maybe there are a lot of them who are saying, you know, how could we possibly give up those distinctives? That's what makes us who we are, right? Um, that's what makes us who we are, and so confirming the Jews in their error. And so the Apostle Paul is given this opportunity with the Apostle Peter present to oppose him to his face Publicly. This is not in a back room. This is not Paul writing a series of blog posts that he publishes without ever having talk, talk to the person that he's writing about. You know, it's not, it's not passive-aggressive, it's simply aggressive. He gets to it, he gets to him, he talks to his face, and he does so before the whole church, it says later in our passage, right? I said to Cephas, in the presence of all, right? So this is being handled publicly. Now, I mean, very quickly, private sins should be dealt with privately. Public sins should be dealt with publicly That is a standard doctrine of Presbyterian polity, right? And so this is public doctrine. This is causing a scandal in the church. And so it, it needs to be dealt with publicly. And so the apostle Paul is not somehow violating Matthew 18 in this. This is a public sin. It needs to be done and dealt with publicly. So he's coming at him in that sense. Now, this shows us that there simply is a time to take a stand. The Apostle Paul shows us when that is. He does not complain about Peter. He does not... um, you know, wring his hands. He doesn't laugh it off. He doesn't say that this is just minor disagreements about our confession of faith. Different interpretations. He says, you're wrong. You are wrong, and here are the consequences of your error. Right? And that's the rest of the book that we read. It's the, the logic will be worked out for us. You are wrong, and this is, as he puts in the passage right? He says, um, you you are not being straightforward about the truth of the gospel. This is a gospel issue. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. That's the first verse we're looking at. Wait, I thought everybody was on the same page, right? Isn't that what was worked out when, when Paul went to the Jerusalem, they likely were on the same page, right? They had all agreed that this, the Gentiles didn't need to follow the law, they didn't need to follow the ceremonial law, that they were justified by faith just like, like we are, right? And they were probably all on the same page. And then there's like the living of doctrine. There's the go out in the world and live it. And Peter runs up against his own sin, his own disposition, his own um, mentality, his own misunderstanding, his error in this, and ultimately his sin in this. Cephas is one of the men that the Apostle Paul went to and said, hey, is this right? And Peter's like, yeah, you're right on. You're right on. So it seems that Peter and Paul were on the same page theologically, but they differed greatly on the outworking of that theology, at least when it came to um, the, situ- the specific situation that the Apostle Peter was in. When it came to the application of the theology, the Apostle Peter got it wrong. He did not understand what his actions conveyed about his theology, or he didn't fully understand, what his, or he did, and he just couldn't. He couldn't deal with his fear. So what did he do? What's his sin? Verse 12. Prior to the coming of certain men from James, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. So before these, James was, you know, one of the pillars in Jerusalem, and, uh, you know, Peter had everything right, Everything was going well. When he was on the field, he was was happy to eat with Gentiles. A Jew would not do that for fear of defilement, right? The work of Christ had eradicated such ceremonial cleanliness. Jews and Gentiles could have table fellowship in Christ. But when James' men showed up, what did Peter do? When James' men showed up, James' men from Jerusalem, Jews, Jewish Christians, when they came, Peter was like, hmm, I don't want to be at odds with James and his men, and so I'm, I'm not going to eat with the Gentiles. You know, I'm, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to eat with the Gentiles anymore. Now, why is this so absurd? Sin is always absurd, by the way. It's insanity. It's absurd. It flies in the face of reason, the word of God, everything you know. When you, when you sin, it is absurd. Because, especially if you know better. And he knows better. Why does he know better? Well, Acts chapter 10 I mean, think about it. Think about Acts chapter ten. Peter was the first one. I'm going the wrong way in my Bible. Peter was the first one who clearly got this message about Jews and Gentiles and and the ceremonial law and what you can eat and what you can't eat and what you you know and what needs to be done. And um, this is the this is where Paul, or Peter, is up meditating, you know, on uh, on his housetop, and a sheet filled with all kinds of unclean animals descends, and God says, take and eat, and he's like, no, 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 I've never defiled myself like that, and, um, and then God uh, God insists, and then Cornelius comes calling, a Gentile, and goes, and the Apostle Peter tells Cornelius all about what had happened, and um, what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. Three times that happened, and immediately the object was taken up. Right, And then um, the Apostle Peter uh, in 10.34, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee, after the baptism which John proclaimed. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, and God was with him. We are witnesses of all these things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day, granted that he become visible, not to all people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is, to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins." Everyone who believes in him. While Peter was still speaking the words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized, who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, then they asked him to stay on for a few days. So all of this, this was the experience of the apostle Peter, then he gets to Antioch, and fear of the circumcision, fear of the Judaizers overcomes him, and so when the Jewish Christians from James, from Jerusalem come, he gets confused, and he's like, I don't want to... I don't want to upset these brothers from Jerusalem so I'm not going to eat with the Gentiles. (sighs) If God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us also after believing the Lord Jesus Christ who was I that I could stand in God's way when they heard this they quieted down and glorified God saying well then God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance to life. So when men came from James, from Jerusalem, why does Peter change his behavior? Here's what one commentator says. If we had to put the most positive construction on this, it could be that word was getting back to Jerusalem that Jewish Christians were no longer observe, observing the Jewish dietary laws. The Jerusalem church would have come under considerable criticism even persecution from the scribes and Pharisees, if this were so. Remember, these were years just prior to the war with Rome, and there is a rising tide of Jewish nationalism and accompanying hatred for things Gentile. Therefore, it may be that James and others saw this step back as necessary in the context of Jewish evangelism. And evangelism always gets used as a reason to drop biblical doctrine right well let's not really address male and female that's not going to play well in today's culture we need to be able to evangelize well okay the these may not have objected in theory if Gentiles did not observe the dietary law but they were sure that Jewish Christians must if they were to have any credibility with non-christian Jews In fact, even Paul said that he was willing to become as... Think of Paul now. Paul said he was willing to become as a Jew, right? And as under the law so that he might win Jews. And he also had Timothy, who is half Greek, circumcised, right? Because of the Jews, he says. And he himself kept and submitted to Jewish purification rituals that you can read about in Acts 16 and Acts 21. So, Paul, come on. I mean, get off your high horse, Paul. Peter just doesn't want to eat with the Gentiles. You have a question, I can tell. Oh. Oh. Oh, in my pocket. Don't look. Don't look. That's that's why it's so warm in there. All right, thank you. All right, so do we get this? I mean, this commentator is saying that, that James and his men may have been coming and putting a little bit of pressure on Peter because, look, the Pharisees and scribes are bloodthirsty against us. Can we just, can we just do this little bit of, of law-keeping in order to keep the peace so that we can save face with them and we actually have an inroad to, to speak to them? Now, other commentators go a different route and, and say, no, these men weren't even from James. They were, imita- they were, they were fakes they weren't men from james and we'll get to why why that can be a valid interpretation. Yeah, no that's that's helpful. I mean, Paul Paul realizes this is error creeping into the church and that if it's allowed to take root, it will absolutely split apart the church and Jews and Gentiles will then never ever have the same faith. But that can't be possible because there's only one faith, one baptism, one lord, and that's the lord Jesus Christ. And so that can't happen and that's his argument in Ephesians honestly. The breaking down of the dividing wall. And so but on the other hand Timothy getting circumcised was so was so that that would not be a stumbling block to Jews who hadn't fully understood the gospel. Maybe had a profession, but were still keeping the ceremonial law. So, who knows? I mean, it. Um, there will be a seminar in glory, and the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul will will lead us through this history, and we'll listen with with um, we'll be fascinated. Notice in verse 13 that Paul calls it hypocrisy. The sin that is committed here is hypocrisy. Peter had a doctrine and then lived in the opposite way. That's hypocrisy. Okay? That's hypocrisy. Um, they were doing that which went against their theology. They, they were going against, their, Peter was going against his inner conviction. They had already discussed this. They were already on the same page. God had appeared to him and told him this. Peter's hypocrisy came from, think of this, craven fear of a small pressure group. Fear. He's just fearful. He's fearful. Common sin of, of all of us. Think of how your behavior changes when you're just a little bit fearful of somebody. When you blow the, the situation out of proportion and they have a little bit of authority, and, and you, and, but they're wrong, <laughs> but you acquiesce because you're just fearful of, of being odious or confrontational or opposite, you're just you're uncomfortable. Think of the pressure that pagans put on us to conform to their manner of life. We just want to be cool and so we cave in and we don't stand firm on what we know is right and it's it's purely out of that fear of being rejected none of us want to be rejected can't we all just love one another right why don't people like me that's a huge question in your life it's a huge question in my life why don't people like me you know and and how, what extent are we willing to go f- to make to make it more possible for people to like me. And that's, that's the base little juvenile sin that Peter's committing here. He's just afraid of these guys. He's afraid of them. That's John Stott said that Peter's hypocrisy was craven fear of a small pressure group. Was the delegation really from James or were they posing... Acts 15:24 From Acts 15:24 we read this Since we have heard that some of our number to whom we gave no instruction have disturbed you with their words unsettling your souls So it seems it seems that it's possible that a delegation from Jerusalem went they said they were coming from James But James and the apostles had given these guys no instruction so that these Judaizers were just taking their own message and claiming the authority of James. That may be going on, which makes the sin of Peter even worse because he's duped. He's duped by these men who may not even have come from James. What did Peter's actions communicate to the church? Unless you conform to Jewish ceremonial law, we can't eat with you. That's what it said. Unless you conform to Jewish ceremonial law, we can't eat with you. What was at stake? A split in the church, a two-tiered church, one Jewish, one Gentile, two ways of salvation, one by faith plus works, one by faith. which really is the division that we see between Roman Catholicism and the Protestant church. As you think about it. And so we pray for the reformation of the the Roman Catholic church. The Jewish Christians, as we might expect, were tempted to follow Peter. The rest of the Jews were tempted to follow Peter's heirs. That's the phrase the Scripture uses. The rest of the Jews, the Jewish Christians, were going after Peter. They liked what he was saying. It was wrong. And even Barnabas, Paul's faithful companion,
1: Barnabas
0: got swept up in this air. He's like, even Barnabas... I mean which shows you how highly the apostle Paul thinks of of his companion Barnabas even Barnabas this, this solid rock was going along with Peter And so Pauls taking all of this in right taking it all in knows that he's got to do the nasty nasty work of confronting the apostle Peter Luther said, Paul had no trifling matter in hand, but the chiefest article of all Christian doctrine, the doctrine of justification. The chiefest article, the the prime article. That's what this was about. It boiled down to justification. Verse 14, we read that what is being opposed is the truth of the gospel. That is what they are not clear on, the truth of the gospel. Um. Peter or Paul opposed Peter publicly to his face. If and he says this: If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles—that's what Peter had been doing. You're a Jew. You've been eating with the Gentiles. Everything has been normal. You, you've you've had table fellowship. You 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 know you haven't been keeping the ceremonial law yourself, right? You haven't been going after these things. If you you know being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews. How is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? Now, why are you compelling? Why are you pushing for the Gentiles now to live like the Jews? You're a Jew living like the Gentiles, and now you're calling the Gentiles to live like Jews? What gives? Man, this is hypocrisy. This doesn't make sense. Do you understand the gospel? Peter had been eating with Gentiles now he's implying that the Gentiles need to live like Jews. And this is that very simple action is to make space for meritorious works and salvation. That little space. That's what Paul is upset about. You're at you're you're taking away the grace of God. And you're adding your works. That little space. Paul's confrontation, therefore, and um, Calvin uses three adjectives about the nature of his, his confrontation. It was serious, it was personal, and it was public. Serious, personal, and public. He didn't laugh his way through this confrontation. You know how when you're awkward with somebody and you have something hard to say to them, you put a smile on your face and you kind of hedge, hedge everything and you, <laughs> you know, laugh and just totally destroy your authority and your seriousness when you do that? Um, that, was not, that was not the Apostle Paul. He was very serious it was done personally. It was public. There would have been a thousand reasons for the Apostle Paul not to do this, right? Think of the Apostle Paul in his mind. Think of, think of him and all the, all the second guessing the Apostle Paul would be going through. Primary of which would probably have been the Gentiles are watching. Right? The Gentiles are watching. Pagans are watching. Unbelievers are watching. You know, we can't show anything but unity. We can't. We, unity, 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 unity has to be expressed all the time and only. In, and if the pagans see us fighting with one another, they're going to think, they're going to laugh at us and say so much for their gospel." I mean, think of the Apostle Paul just as his personal, his personal issues. You know, he, he, wasn't, he wasn't one of the eleven. <laughs> he could have just said, look, that's one of the eleven. I'm just one untimely born, and it's not my place to really battle about the truth here. I'm just going to let this one go. I'm going to take a back seat. Not re- <laughs> who knows if... If anybody wasn't tempted in that direction, it would be the Apostle Paul. But, But I think he probably was. There have been a thousand reasons not to do this. Chief among them would be to not give a bad look for the church. Division, we think, is an ugly testimony to the world. But the truth was at stake. The truth of the gospel, the core doctrine of the gospel, was at stake, and therefore, unity was not the primary, uh, the primary goal. Truth precedes unity, okay, and unity only exists where truth is agreed upon. Right, where truth is the uh, the glue. When truth is at stake, unity cannot be used to accept error. (laughs) That is the way of the 21st century church. Okay? Anybody who's introducing heresy into the church, you know what they always talk about? Unity. That's what they talk about. Oh, we have to be unified. Okay, okay. We have to be unified around something, and that's around the truth of the Word of God. That's what will lead to unity. Not this idea of big tents, tons of ideas, tons of contradictory doctrines coming together so that we can show the world a unified front that believes in nothing. Right? That is the way of the mainline church... For the past 150 years. And the truth is no longer there. The truth is gone. They don't have repentance. They don't have justification. They don't have sanctification. They have glorification of the sins of the flesh. That's all they're left with. Think of the division that would have come if the Apostle Paul and Peter had gotten together and preempted the argument about truth for a manufactured artificial unity. Jew and Gentile church. The church would be so different right now. There'd be competing gospels. There would be, there would, it, it, it would be, um, Jews would be, um, who knows what would happen. It would become even more perverse than just having a division by this point. Calvin says, Paul might easily have fallen into line with Peter and yet he found his sin intolerable. This ought to serve as an example to us so that instead of being blinded by the authority of a man who is undermining God's truth, we must enter into combat without fear. Calvin, God does not intend anyone in his church to enjoy the kind of preeminence which prevents his word from having free course for his word must control even those who have a degree of superiority over others. Right? There is a, there is a time when you've got to stick it to the man. Right? And that's what the apostle Paul did with Peter. Now it's especially, I mean, given Calvin and Luther talking about this, you know, and during the time of the Reformation when the papacy, the seat of Peter, is persecuting the true church, you know, and they're looking at this and saying, there's your Peter, he's not infallible, right? He sinned, he committed error, but the actual Peter repented and he was humble. Why won't the papacy ever repent? They never repent. They never ever, because of the foolish doctrine they've accepted, can allow themselves to repent. And so so Calvin and Luther are constantly saying, would that the papacy was like Peter and that he repented and changed course. One last thing. Calvin's commentary, uh, or actually these are sermons on Galatians. Really good. Um, I want to read one section to close here. Here's what he says. When we draw together all these various lessons, we find we have a most instructive account. Firstly, we all know how important it is to feel at peace with the world. This is why many of us are blind to our faults, because the world flatters us. We are like this because we think we, have, we will have no friends unless we tolerate our neighbors. Well, there is indeed a kind of forbearance which is commendable, as we have said. It involves being gentle when we rebuke those who have fallen and always seeking to draw men back in a friendly way. We must not be too harsh. After all, some faults can be overlooked and do not always merit being fully exposed. If we are constantly ready to reprove others... We only make them feel exasperated. Too many people are continually on the prowl to see whether there is anything they can attack. Their holiness amounts to nothing more than mocking one person or chiding another. In short, these are the world's greatest critics. We must keep ourselves from such attitudes and not always be wanting to reprove others. However, the kind of flattery which surrounds us today is a sin which we ought to shun as we would a deadly plague. Let us then learn that in order to love our neighbor, we must speak freely to him, as Paul does here, especially when when God's truth is at stake. We must not fear anyone, for the zeal of God must rise up within us and overwhelm us, even if it means that we acquire a bad reputation and become the object of all kinds of calumny and slander. Nevertheless, we must enter into combat." There is no excuse for treacherous dissimulation whereby we deny the truth of the gospel. Therefore, we must follow the example set for us here by Paul, which he did to his companion Peter. What he did to his companion Peter ought to serve as a law and a rule for us. We must prove that we desire people to listen to God and not to exchange his truth for a lie also that none should obscure his truth or add leaven to it. It must remain in its purity and simplicity. Well, let's, let's pray. Father, we are so often overcome with our fears and we do understand completely the sin of Peter. Peter the sin on the night in which he betrayed Jesus, the sin that he committed in Antioch. We get fearful and we try to save face and we try to broker peace with those who want no peace. So Father, forgive us for our weakness, our cowardice, how we've held our tongue, how we have said things to soften your word, to make it more palatable to others. Forgive us for this fear. And Father, I pray that we would be ready because we are pure in our thoughts and in our actions and in our doctrine to engage in combat with those who wish to pervert the gospel. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.